We've got a great interview for you guys today. We have found the last Rockefeller Republican. In his case, literally, it's Dave Spencer. He's here in the studio with me, and he's the founder of Practically Republican, and he is the grandson of John D. Rockefeller III, and nephew of former Senator Jay Rockefeller, who was actually a Democrat. Um, now, Dave, it's great to have you here. Uh, you know, you got a long resume, MBA from Stanford, uh, Bay Kids, nonprofit organization that serves children through self-empowerment programs. You're on the executive committee of the California Republican Party. But uh, mainly, I want to talk about uh, practically Republican, and is it possible to be a moderate Republican anymore? So in that light, uh, let me read the stated objective of practically Republican, mm -hmm. and then we'll take that as a base. Sure. It says, to engage, organize, and motivate <clears throat> a new kind of GOP supporter, one who is fact and issue-oriented and invites conversation, respects differences of opinion, believes in compromise, and puts sound policy before partisanship. So I read that and I think, that well, that makes sense, Dave. That's a good, good and worthy goal. Uh, but the immediate question I have is, why bother? Well, I think you have to look at it from two ways. Word that a lot of the current voters are very set in their ways. And I think the key to the success of an organization like Practically Republican is engaging future voters. That's why we've teamed up with No Labels, for example, which is a great organization. And we're, we're going to, to a symposium in New Hampshire in October where they'll have uh, students from hundreds of colleges. Because I think engaging the next generation, which the, the country has been, even though this is funny, the politics of the country have been moving slightly to the right in terms of policy, but the country, in terms of their views, has been moving slightly to the left. So I would say significantly yeah, to the left. Yeah, and so what we're, what we're trying to do is just make sure people are, are informed, because particularly in the mid, you know, the, president, the presidential election that turned out is 60% if we're lucky, and last year's midterms was 34%, which is abysmal. Yeah. And so if people don't participate in the process and they don't care, then it gives politicians a chance to be a lot more irresponsible and a lot less accountable. So those are all the right and, and decent answers. But so, but I ask why bother in two lights. Okay. One is, uh, if I was a Rockefeller, I probably wouldn't do anything. <laughs> I'm <laughs> kidding. But we'll get back to that. We'll talk right, about that right. a little bit. Um, uh, but, but more importantly, why bother trying to reform the Republican Party? Why not just be a Democrat? <laughs> I mean, and you understand that you've got issues because this is a you're unique and interesting because you're trying to be a reasonable Republican, which then makes you wonder why you're in the party. Yeah, well, I, I think that uh, um, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question, and part of it is because it's a passion of mine, and I don't have any ulterior motives. I'm not running for anything. I'm not trying to make money. I don't need the money. But I think part of it is that there are a lot of people that are not engaged in the process, and I think that what we're trying to do is make it more of a ground up as opposed to a top-down organization. So to get people more interested, and then they, that will make them participate more. And we've chosen really four issues that we call our pillars of pragmatism, two of which everyone agrees with, and two of which if the party doesn't address, we're going to be nationally irrelevant for 40 years. Tax reform and campaign finance reform, I think everyone would agree, is something that needs to be addressed. And mm -hmm. then climate change and immigration are issues that are will become more and more important, particularly when you look again at the demographics. And that you know, my, my favorite stat is if you look at nineteen eighty eight and two thousand twelve, Mitt Romney and George H. W. Bush got exactly the same percentage of the white vote, which is almost sixty percent. 
The difference was George H.W. Bush got 426 electoral votes and Mitt Romney got 206. Mm. This, this election, because again, every month, 25 to 50,000 Latinos become eligible to vote. So it'll be 28 million this year, which is 11% of the population. So this year, to, to match last year, to, they would have to get 65% of the white vote, which was only done in, when Ronald Reagan won 49 states in 1984. So, you that know, as, tough, tough as Lindsey Graham said, we're just not minting enough angry white guys to stay in business. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I get all that, yeah. and, and Trump isn't going to make your job any easier, right? He, no, he is not. He just threw a grenade in your tent uh, by uh, making your chance of getting a Republican president uh, given that demographic hurdle, I don't want to say nearly impossible, that's too strong, but really, really hard, right? Okay, but again, what makes you a Republican? Because, okay, if you're open to reasonable immigration policies, mm -hmm. well, that's the Democratic position. If you're open Not to- for everyone, but- Okay, um, so, uh, well, so let's get into those distinctions mm -hmm. in a second, right? If you're open to campaign finance reform, now, there's a lot of great Republicans that fight for that on the local and state level, but not a lot on the national level. So, so what makes you a Republican? What do you like about so, the Republican well, Party? Well, our, uh, because what the Republican Party has traditionally stood for, in my opinion, has been abandoned. And that was being pragmatic. That was being fiscally conservative. That was being not necessarily socially liberal, but not wearing it, not wearing it on your sleeve, not talking about no exceptions for rape or incest and abortion and defunding Planned Parenthood, which increases abortions, by the way. So, so it's, it's part of it is the pragmatism, and our motto is let's talk. So we're trying to engage people because I think a lot of, I think if you, all you hear now is what people disagree on, right? And there's a lot of things that people agree on if they talk, and the chapter from um, my book, which is called Practically Republican, which you can get on the website, Download it for free, of course, practicallyrepublican.com. The last chapter is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And it's almost like an old-fashioned thing when you're setting people up. Mm -hmm. and you have Michael Bloomberg in the middle, then you have conservatives on either side, and you, and you sit them, you know, boy, conservative, liberal, and you ask them some innocuous questions, you know, where are you from, how many kids? And then you ask, what do you think, what do we agree on? Mm -hmm. And just to give you a classic example, I don't agree with Ted Cruz on practically anything. But what he well, bless your heart. <laughs> but what he wants to do on campaign campaign finance reform is exactly what we suggest, and that is get, oh that's very interesting yeah so that? so we suggest that you know campaign money really is like water that goes downhill, and part of I think in being a, a responsible uh, political person is admitting when you're wrong. And I supported McCain Feingold, and that was a mistake because that started the process which the, the dreadful Citizens United completed of transferring the distribution power from the party to the individual. Mm -hmm. the parties, because they're big tents, have to look out for more interest, whereas the mm -hmm. Sheldon Adelsons and the Koch brothers or the Steyers of the world, they're looking out for their specific interests. And so it's made it much more extreme and much more partisan. So his, I think there should be no limits and 100% disclosure, because I feel like many people do. It's the anonymity bothers me more than the amount. Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it would drown, drown itself out because so much money would come into the system. And mm -hmm. you, but you'd be, no, if someone gives a gazillion to a candidate, you'd be able to know. Then down the road, if all of a sudden President 
whoever does a favor for someone, you're like, wait, why would, why do they do that? And you can look back and see, oh, they gave him $3 million. Okay, so that partly explains why you're a yeah. Republican. That's a and perfectly fine position to have. I totally disagree, by the way. Okay. Uh, and so, and, and, and the reason is, now, of course, I'm for disclosure. We should at least know who's giving the bribes to the politicians. But, yeah. but in reality, they're not giving it out of the goodness of their hearts. Of there might not. be a couple of guys who care about one particular issue. Uh, look, and let's be fair on both sides. Steyer mm -hmm. cares about climate change. I think it's genuine. Right. Adelson cares about Israel, and I think it's genuine. He also cares about crushing unions and, yeah, uh, and yeah. et cetera, and that's for financial Paying reasons. Paying 9% taxes and all that, that's the right. fun stuff he does. Right. But, okay, but most of it is they're businessmen, and they're giving a bribe, and they are going to demand a return on their money. And we don't know all of them, but we know some of them, and it doesn't stop them at all. <laughs> we know that it's the Koch brothers, and they're like, yeah, we're going to give, we're going to get, gather up a whole bunch of people, we're going to give $900 million, we're going to buy all your politicians, and there's not a goddamn thing you could do about it. But right, but right now, uh, the, the, the whole super PAC thing is obviously a joke, because mm -hmm. this thing about, they, oh, they can't communicate with the candidates. I'm, I'm, I'm going to play golf with them, but don't worry, we're not going to talk about our super PAC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's <laughs> right. a crock. Right. But I think that if you look at, at the fact that individuals in general are still limited to $2,700 or in mm -hmm. San Francisco it's even $500 or whatever. So I think if everybody had unlimited amounts to give, a lot of it would cancel each other out. So, uh, so you'd no, have no, less in the system. I don't think it would, and I'll tell you why. And, okay. So two reasons. Mm -hmm. One, the overwhelming majority of people don't have any money to give. So their voices get drowned out, and it becomes a battle of the rich. So yes, there's some liberal rich who could counteract the, the the conservative rich, but they don't. They do it not for financial remuneration. And if you have a financial incentive uh, to give to politicians, well, you will give more. It's just logic. It's pure incentives, disincentives, right? So if I give a, a you know ten million dollars and I get a tax break worth a hundred million dollars, I'm going to keep doing that. If I give ten million dollars because I really care about uh, helping inner city kids, well, I don't have a financial incentive to do that. I might do that out of the goodness of my heart, and I might continue that. Eventually, the people who have a financial incentive will drown out the people who don't, and they'll run the place. And that's basically what's happened. Well, I think we'll agree to disagree on that one because really? I think again that there yes there are very few people who can give nine figure checks but there are a lot of people who can give six figure checks mm -hmm. and and that would add up because right now it's the individuals that, that are hamstrung mm -hmm. corporations and PACs can give what they want so I'm saying at least make it a level playing field empower the individuals and then you have the disclosure because we've tried so many times to limit campaign finance and it just hasn't worked so mm -hmm. after a while, as I say, you have to acknowledge it's like water going downhill. You, yeah. can, you, can, you can dam it up, but it's not going to, in the end, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get where it goes. But, but in, in, in any case, I think that's where people agree. And there are a lot of other issues that, for example, if you ask people about the minimum wage, you know, more than 53% of Republicans th think we should raise the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. If you ask about uh, asking the working class people, but also the rich to help subsidize Social Security. Like 70% of Republicans agree with that. So, there, you know, again, if we focused on the things that we agreed upon, and, and then we could start to build up a modicum of trust because right now there's so much, and particularly since Newt Gingrich, when the whole demonizing thing started, so it's not just your ideas are bad, but you're bad. Mm -hmm. And so it's so, it's so personal mm -hmm. that, 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 Let's try to, 
and ta uh, tax reform, for example, is something everyone agrees the system is broken. People work to maximize the tax system, not to maximize productivity, which makes the economy less efficient. What we suggest to practically Republican is that you have to do two things. First of all, you have to have revenue neutrality, which is what Reagan said in 1986 when they did it. That way, mm -hmm. no one's ra raising or lowering taxes. Then I would do, I would suggest doing what they did when they closed all those military bases, which is, I mean, talk about pork, is they set up a bipartisan commission that made recommendations, and then everyone in Congress was allowed in an up or down vote. No riders, no amendments, and most important, no lobbyists, because nothing kicks the hornet's nest of lobbyists more than tax reform. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can get into more detailed conversation, but I think, you know, I, I'm a, just to give you an idea, this, the, the four biggest uh, write-offs are employer deductibility of health care, mortgage interest, charitable giving, state and local taxes. And I think you can, you can make a very convincing argument to get rid of all of those. I'm a philanthropist, for example, but the charitable giving in this country has remained remarkably constant at 2% of GDP, despite a tax rate in the last 65 years that has gone as high as 91% and as low as 28%. So people will give because they want to give, and a, you know, a third of the organizations are bogus. You can get a write-off by giving to the Church of Scientology. Yeah, well, so, again, we agree on that. <laughs> so, look, I think you're a reasonable guy, and we definitely have disagreements. I right. also disagree on, on taxes in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. uh, which I can outline in a second. But, yeah. but Dave, I keep coming back to the money in politics, and I'll tell you why. Because mm -hmm. you, you, the central question you're asking is, how come we uh, agree on these things, but they're not getting done? Because you know, there, there's a majority of Republicans who are in favor of things that, that progressives agree with, that, that you just outlined. Yeah. Uh, and it's because the politicians are paid not to agree. So they, it's all fine and good. Yeah, of course, it's a tough... Well, I just did a story about gun violence today where over 70% of NRA members say, for God's sake, get a decent federal background check, yeah. right? right. Uh, over 80% of gun owners say that. Over 90% of Americans say that, right? And mm -hmm. we can't get it because the politicians get their paychecks, not paychecks, but donor checks from the NRA. But, so, And we know mm -hmm. it. We know it. And we know their names. And they're out in the open. So that's why we're never going to get agreement. It's, so it's... So you go to the Republicans and a lot of Democrats, mm -hmm. Schumer, mm -hmm. et cetera, right? So this is not like Democrats are. Well, angels. Schumer was the one yeah. who blocked the closing of the hedge fund, hedge fund loophole, by the yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. For which I will never forgive him. Yeah. So uh, you're absolutely right about that. And, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, he, when it comes to money corrupting politics, Schumer is uh, near the top of the list yes. as well, right? Yeah. But, but the Republican Party has really professionalized this, <laughs> okay? And so when you go to have a reasonable conversation, you keep getting surprised why you, they won't because they get paid not to have a reasonable See, conversation. That's, that's true in some cases, but the background checks is a perfect example. I actually blame President Obama more Jesus, than, why? Uh, I'll explain. First of all, the NRA, I think, is, is somewhat of a paper tiger. They have a $300 million total budget. They, they gave $20 million to campaigns. Mm -hmm. In two, 2012, their success rate was about 1%. Mm -hmm. So the NRA relies more on their reputation mm -hmm. scaring people than their financial clout. So I think if people had more courage to stand up to the NRA, that their power would, would be much lessened. But that's a side issue. But... The, the, there were four votes short uh, on that background checks bill. Mm -hmm. And someone like Pat Toomey, who will probably get reelected in Pennsylvania as senator because he had the guts to stand up as a Republican and co-sponsor the background check bill with Joe Manson, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who's mm -hmm. also 
a gun guy. And Obama's, I think his one of his biggest weaknesses is he hates to do what one of the most important tasks of a president is. Mm-hmm. And that is to sometimes to swallow your pride, to go up to Capitol Hill and say, look, I need your help on this, all right? Two, two examples of people who, who voted against it, all right? Heidi Heitkamp was a new senator from North Carolina, right? 85% of people, I mean, North Dakota, 85% of the people in her state wanted the bill passed. But she got calls from the Gun Club of America and from the NRA. And Obama should have gone into her and say, look, you're a new senator. I need, I need your help on this or I'm going to make your life miserable for six years. Okay? So agree and disagree. Mark, Mark Begich from Alaska, he had asked for a favor from the Interior Department. He votes against the bill. And they still do the favor. What do you think LBJ would have done? He would have, you know what is, he's, you know what's off. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so, the, so, so the part I agree with you on, Dave, is that, uh, yes, uh, Obama is very reluctant to go to Democrats and say, there will be a price to pay. You cross me at your peril, right? And to go to Republicans and say, look, I politics, when push comes to shove, is a transactional business, in my view. Mm-hmm. And... Sometimes you need to go, and he did this, thank God, on the, on the trade bill, which is why it passed, because he, he was thinking more, I think, of his legacy. But you also need to go to Republicans, people you disagree with, and you say, look, you help me on this. I know there's a bill down the road that you need support on. I'll help you on that. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what someone like LBJ was a master of. Yeah, but I think that we're looking at this. The part I disagree with you is that that's an antiquated way of looking at it. Because back in LBJ's days, we had not done, the Supreme Court had not yet decided Buckley v. Vallejo, Bilotti, uh, that allowed corporations and, and the ultra rich to give, in essence, unlimited money through super PACs, through other things. Citizens United put it on steroids. But, but they had already said corporations can give money to politicians. From then on, we were toast. So now, when Obama goes to those people and he tries to put pressure on them, Mm. he has some tools in his arsenal. And I wish he would use those tools more. But at the end of the day, they go, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, Mr. President. But the lobbyists have much more control over those politicians than the president does. So they go, yeah, that's like your opinion, man. And we can go play golf, but that guy writes my checks. That guy decides whether I get elected or don't get elected. 19 out of 20 times in Congress, the guy with more money wins. Not not dependent on Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative. Whoever has more money wins 95% of the time. So they can say to the president, very pleasant having tea and crumpets with you. But I'm still going to vote with the guy that signs my checks. But, Jenk, the one thing you're forgetting is money is the, is the second most important criterion in what, pol- in what politicians want. Votes is number one. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, Larry David's ex-wife gave all this money to Tom Daschle mm-hmm. when he was running for re-election. And he didn't carry out what she wanted to do because the people in, in his state didn't, didn't want it. So I think that a lot of times... But what does the money buy, though, Dave? The money buys ads to deceive people. But the point is, if there's legislation that is good for your state, and it's something that is not going to pass without the president's support, or the president might veto it, that's where you use the power. Because then then you appeal to what still... Getting reelected is the primary motivation of politicians. Not raising money. Raising money helps them. But still, getting reelected is the number one thing that they, that, that, that they want to do. And making people in their state happy is the, most, the best way to, no way. to do that. Tricking the money people in their state through ads 
pretending that he they did their bidding while doing the bidding of the donors is the most efficient and practical a, way of getting reelected. But that's assuming that that they don't actually come through with legislation. Okay, no, if, no, they, if legislation is irrelevant, and I can prove it. Princeton did a study. They studied twenty years, mm -hmm. uh, eighteen hundred different policy positions. Mm -hmm. Public opinion had zero effect. Zero effect on public policy. What had a direct correlation was special interest and donor opinion. Right. I'm not, so, I'm not so talking about public could, opinion. You couldn't pass the laws that your state hates, and the people in, the, in that state hate. The Republicans hated, Democrats hated. You'll still win if you have more money because you'll buy ads that'll say, "I was on your side." Yeah, yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And the other guy doesn't mm -hmm. have a megaphone, and you crush him. But we're, it, we're, it but, but in some ways, we're talking time. about apples and oranges here because, again. You're talking about public opinion, and I'm saying there are certain things, for example, like you know, certain states like subsidies, certain states want agricultural breaks. Those are the kind of things that those policies that politicians can come home and say, well, this guy may may raise more money and he's running negative ads, but I've got this bill passed, I got that bill passed, I got that How bill passed. How are you going to do it if you don't have money? You won't have the ads no, to be but, able to tell people. But the point is, that's what you, the, the way politics used to work. And I think that the, it, what has, has, has made that less effective, it's partially money, but it's partially that nobody talks to each other anymore. Okay, these guys used to be roommates. I mean, the, the best example is go to the Senate dining room right now. It's the most depressing place. There's a few people in there, and they're all eating by themselves. All right, you know, it was like LB, the, the, the famous case of LBJ when he was trying to get the civil rights bill. You know, he would, he would call up our, our congressman and they'd say, well, listen, we, he, we need to talk. And, the, and, they, and they'd say, you know, I've been over there three times. I've got to go home. Do you understand, Mr. Pre Mr. President? And LBJ would be driving up to the Capitol to see them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so, but that's Dave, I'll what tell you I, a that's depressing what, story okay. about that. I was talking to a Democratic congressman mm -hmm. once. And I, and I asked him that same question. I said, do you guys eat lunch together anymore? Like, is there any, do you have any Republican friends? Do you guys go bowling together, right? Yeah. It's unlikely that they go bowling. But I asked him, he said, are you kidding me? I don't have time to eat lunch with Democrats. He said, if my staff caught me eating lunch, they'd grab me by the ear, put me in a room to dial for dollars. Because we have to spend at least 50% of our time, but oftentimes more, begging people for money. Okay, we don't have time to eat lunch with Republicans or Democrats. That's the state they're in. Yes, but when but when you're on the House floor or the Senate floor, you do you you do have time to be cordial and you do have time to actually again. My, our theory is let's focus on things that we agree on. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then we can get some common sense stuff passed. That will start to build a foundation of trust. How can you do business with someone when you not only dislike them and you demonize them, but you don't trust them? Mm -hmm. You can't do it. So I'm well, saying you know, we, again, we, we need, we need a foundation. So one fun thing we found out yeah. from this interview is right. you are a Republican, and we do disagree. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's good. And, and, so, and it's okay yeah. to have a – but oh, you're absolutely. And no. so we're having a real conversation, and we're finding out where we agree and where we disagree, which is what you want to do, which is great, and which is what I want to do as part of the Young right. Turks. Dave, the part I disagree with on what you just said is, mm. yeah, no, they do agree oftentimes. Like, for example, in the trade deal that you talked about. Now, so why do they agree? Uh, the Democrats and Republicans agreed, and they actually, passed that no, bill. No, actually, it was the Republicans that got that bill passed. Nancy Pelosi yeah, went agree. on the floor and opposed it. So that was no, no, I agree, but a they reverse example, so that's not an example of that. No, no, but they passed it because they got enough Democratic votes and enough Republican votes, and President Obama, who's a Democrat, was in favor of it. And he, that was the first time, by the way, that he, he sucked it up and went up to Capitol Hill and schmoozed. 
Yeah. So you that's one of the reasons that that, that that bill also passed. No, here's the real reason why that bill passed. It passed because all of the money was behind the bill. The corporate money was behind the bill. Uh, the wealthy and the powerful were behind the bill. So that is the one time Republicans and Democrats agree. Well, we agree the rich and the powerful should win. Republicans are pro-trade, and that's one of the main problems I have with Democrats is they're pro-union. And so, no, no, no. Yeah, so that's Dave, where. That's okay, not all right. Well, so, no, that's not fair. It is partly true. It's so, not. It's not. It's, okay. it's like about 80% true, at least. So, yes, Democrats get money from unions. By the way, if, if I had it my way, and we have a, a whole pack to defeat all the other packs to get money out of politics, it's called Wolf Pack. Um, if I had it my way, I wouldn't let the unions put in a dime into politics. I don't want the unions bribing the politicians anymore. Right. I want. Uh, you know, corporations uh, uh, bribing the politicians. I don't want anybody bribing them. I want democracy, right? So, do, do the unions have uh, a lot of sway with the Democratic Party? Yes, they used to have actually a lot more sway, but now corporations give more to the Democrats than unions do. So the unions have lost some power, or I would say significant power, within the Democratic Party. Well, and you but look at the percentage of the workforce that's unionized now. See, my thing is that I'm split on unions. I think private sector unions are very important. Because mm -hmm. it's basically a, a mutually assured destruction thing, right? If they beat up the company too much, the company goes out of business, everyone loses. It's public sector employees that should never, should never have been allowed to unionize. Because the government's not going out of business, and it's the fox watching the hen house, all right? Mm -hmm. They bribe these people that give them the most. And the worst was in California when Gray Davis was elected in 1999, he took office and he gave the unions a 20 or 30% boost in their pension. Now, granted, the NASDAQ was going up 83% that year, but they didn't need it. But the worst thing was that CalPERS said, oh, don't worry, no one has to sacrifice. We'll just make our projections more rosy. We'll assume 8% instead of 4%. Any responsible pension manager will tell you that if you're paying out, 4% is being generous. And the difference between 8% and 4% over 30 years is 68%. Yeah. So you no, so, so that. that's I, why all these states are having these pension crises. So private sector unions I support, public sector unions I do not. So public sector unions are an interesting case. And and I think that we could probably come to a reasonable yeah. agreement on that. I don't necessarily agree with your position wholeheartedly here, but I understand the case that you're making. Right, right. And so for example, uh, cops are a public sector union, right? right? And 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 their union is so strong their pensions are unbelievable in, in the tri-state area, etc., and oftentimes they're above the law. Okay, right. so there, I get the issues. I get why public sector is different than private sector, and those are the reasonable conversations we can have. But at the same time, when you say Republicans are pro-trade, no, no, I, I used to be a Republican, right? And, and so, I'm, and I'm that's good. why this no. is an interesting conversation yeah. because yeah. you and I went in a slightly different direction. Right. I, I saw some of the same problems you saw, and mm -hmm. I thought. Well, why stay bother staying in this party? It turns out they're not for fiscal responsibility, uh, and you know you go down the list, and they didn't do any things they promised. The last Republican president to balance the budget was Eisenhower, right? They Over the last thirty-five years, when has the budget deficit, public employment, and spending gone up under Republican administrations? That's right. You know, That's the right. one thing I will never forgive Ronald Reagan for, though he did a lot of great things. The, most importantly, he got us off the. The defensive as a country for, for the first time since the, Viet, the, the Vietnam War. He won the Cold War, though he could have done it a lot more cheaply. Uh -huh. But he was the first president that got us living beyond our means. We never mm -hmm. used to run a deficit in this country unless it was wartime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, David Stockman admitted later just how, how egregiously phony all those numbers that they supported were. And then, then, and then you had Bush that, that came in and the same type of thing. You know, I'm someone who believes overall 
you want lower taxes and lower spending, though the Grover Norquist say you, you can never raise taxes. Sometimes you have to raise taxes. Sometimes you have to raise spending. I think, for example, the stimulus plan should have been a little bigger mm -hmm, uh, that mm -hmm. Obama came through. And it, half of it was $880 billion, Half of that was tax cuts. Yeah. So I think it should have been – and the infrastructure. I mean, the, the, the construction industry had a 14% unemployment rate. Interest rates are practically zero. The money, the government can borrow money for free. It builds something that lasts, and it spreads the wealth across the country. And we did nothing. Yeah. So it, it, there's so much we agree and disagree yeah. on, and it's good. That's a good, fruitful conversation. I can't help but say one last political yeah. point, and then I want to talk yeah. about your background a little bit. Sure. Uh, so uh, on the pro-trade, so yeah. I, I'm of course I'm pro-trade. I think almost everybody is pro-trade. The question is, how do you do it? And I think at this point that the 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 bill that we're discussing. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it says that corporations are allowed to supersede national law. That's giving away our sovereignty. So they can go in and say, I'm going to take you to an international tribunal because you say I can't dump this toxin into your river. Well, that impedes my profits. And so if you're impeding my profits, I can take you to an international court. That is Preposterous. Well, I'm pro trade, but I don't want you to dumping stuff into my river and I can't control it through my democracy. Every, every, there's no bill that, that is perfect. I mean, I mean sometimes we can get into health care, it's a whole other thing. But with the trade bill, overall, it was a good bill. It involved 40% of the world's economy. And I think if we, had, if we had not passed it, it would have reinforced this reputation that we have deservedly been getting around the world is that we're just not in control anymore. That, that, but that, that, that but, but the ironic thing is I, we're not in control anymore, the corporations are. I, I agree with you that that's, but, but at least there is, a, there is an international tribunal. There is a body that would rule on Shouldn't that. Shouldn't Republicans hate that? That they gave away sovereignty to an international tribunal? Well, but again, trade is more important. You know, it, it's, it's, there, there are problems with almost every bill. I, I can't think of one bill that I've ever seen that I said, oh my God, this is a perfect bill. But my goal is if you know 80 or 90% of it is good, then you deal with the 10 or 20% that's bad because overall you're gonna have a much more of a, of a, net, of a net positive. So we can go back and forth on all these yeah. issues all day, which would be which fun. Which I, well, I hope so, I'm really enjoying this conversation, it's fun. Yeah, so uh, again, I wanna get into mm -hmm. why you like politics and got into it and stuff. So, where did you? You grew up in New York, right? I grew up in Manhattan. Are, were most was most of the Rockefeller family in Manhattan? Uh, yes, I'd say most of us live around New York. But uh -huh. it, but it's interesting thing because it's it's shifted by generation. For example, my grandfather's generation, um, even though Nelson was the quintessential Rockefeller Republican, that's he's it's named uh, after I mean, him. Named after him, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, was tend to be more conservative. My, then the next generation, I think part of it was it was mostly women and there was a lot of rebellion against the Rockefeller name and, you know, embarrassment and all that. They're very liberal. Mm -hmm. I'm fifth generation. We're kind of middle of the road. There are some of us that are, that are conservative, some of, the, some of us that are more liberal. But um, so the family's really gone all, all over the place. And I think that's one of the great things about our family is that we're very diverse. We have very different views, but we get together a couple times a year. We really, oh, do you? We, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we, 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 we really keep in touch. And, and uh, um, you know, I have six cousins on my dad's side and 280 on my mom's side. So the, so, so the family oh has gotten God. pretty big. We're already up to the seventh generation now. Uh, so I got to ask, because everybody in the audience yeah. has got to be wondering, is there still enough Rockefeller money for the 286 cousins? Well, the, it, the interesting thing is that that's one of the things I'm most proud of about our family is that the way the, the money was set up was through these original trusts that were established 
because the tax laws were going to be changed. And so it's who's, you know, the, the interest can, the money can pass tax-free until the, what's called the termination beneficiary, who is the last person, the, the, the youngest person alive when the trust was created. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a big difference in the amount of money. You know, it, nobody's starving, okay? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's a huge gap in what some people have and other, and other people have. And I think that's one of the things that makes me most proud is that we, we, we deal with that well, and despite our differences, and money is one of them. Some people are more wealthy. Some people are more liberal or more conservative. But, you know, we all, when we're a family, we really focus on being a family. And, again, as I think that's part of my inspiration for Practically Republican, we always talk about, you know, what, what can we do positively, mm-hmm. not, you know, who's got more money or who's got a better deal or, 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 or anything like that. So I think we're... Uh, Remarkably close family when you consider the circumstances that could tear us apart. I read all those horror stories about by the time you get to the third generation, let alone the fifth generation, like the Duke family, they had this this huge uh, fortune in in North Carolina. Good old tobacco money. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and by the third generation, they're all like horrible, uh, dysfunctional families, heroin addicts, etc. So... uh, is there a branch of the Rockefeller family that's like, oh, they, they got hit by that part? I'm, I'm proud to say we have had remarkably few people uh, really screw up. I mean, we had one, uh, one, one person who did, unfortunately, die of a drug overdose. But overall, uh, I think because we are a family that just has good values, and I was lucky to have two great parents who... My dad taught me the important things about etiquette and being a gentleman and you know, how it's, you need to have a good vocabulary and you need to dress a certain way and present you a certain way. And my mom is you know, the most moral, most ethical person I know. I mean, she's the kind of person that would walk a mile to return a dollar. Mm-hmm. But she did something that was very smart, is that she really got us interested in, in philanthropy when we were at a young age. And so she set up a, a trust that the age of 18, but we weren't going to get the principal. And I believe, certainly I don't have kids, but if I do, I, that they shouldn't get money till they're 35. Mm-hmm. Because most people get it at 21, that's too young. Even 25, 35, you've been out of college for more than 10 years, you have to support yourself, establish yourself. So she set up this trust. But so for the first 17 years, 6% of the original principal had to go to charity. Mm-hmm. And part of the deal was that I didn't just have to choose the charities. Well, I didn't choose them, but I would recommend them. But I would have to actually go and visit them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and see. And we, you know, we gave to like in big league basketball for inner, for inner cities and uh, inv- some environmental organizations and some voting rights organizations. And so that really got me interested in in philanthropy. It's kind of like, hey, you know, you 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 be a you be a philanthropist for 17 years, and then there's some money waiting for you at the end of the rainbow there. That is, and that so, is an excellent yeah, and, and, and yeah. I and I would seriously, you know, anyone who's wealthy who's watching this, I think it's a great idea because you it, it incentivizes your kids to get in to be, to become philanthropic, and that's one of the greatest things that we have in this country. And it's not just about uh, philanthropy; it's it's also gets you to care about other human beings, right? Which right. is actually and and honestly, for I I know some wealthy folks mm-hmm. in my life and. Some uh, earn their wealth throughout their lives and careers, right. and some were born into it. And it's honestly harder if you're born into it. And I, unless your parents work really hard at it, it's hard not to feel entitled and, 
and and be used to the money, right? Well, yeah, and, and I think that was true. As someone in, in my case, I, I I don't think I ever felt entitled, but I did feel that I was going to li- live a charmed life because you know I was born in this family, and then uh, when I had my accident at nineteen, mm-hmm. I think that was it, obviously it's, it's a terrible thing, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it, you know, it really makes you appreciate things. It gives you a clarity. You don't take things for granted. You lose any smugness or entitlement that you have, and you're just happy to be around. You know, and mm-hmm. you realize things like, you know, money and is really just an amplifier or a means. You know, your relationships and your experiences. That's your soul. That's what you take with you, and that's one of the reasons I love to travel so much because I think seeing amazing parts of the world with people you care about, nothing's better. Except maybe talking about politics. <laughs> no, that's the other thing's probably slightly better. Uh, so you, uh, you lost your leg in the accident, right? Yeah, I lost my right leg above the knee. Uh, the technology has improved, sadly, but not surprisingly. The only time that prosthetic technology improves is during wartime. Yep, that makes sense. They, they yeah. didn't even have a hydraulic knee until the Vietnam War. And then mm-hmm. with, with Iraq and Afghanistan, they've come out with computerized knees. I have a second-generation computerized knee, which really gets me around well. Uh, the foot picks up naturally, so before I was always swinging it out a little bit, and now it's more of a step-over-step thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, it, it really, this is the first leg I've had that it feels like a, a true extension. Mm-hmm. And you know, and also I think, it, for me, body care and good health is not an option. That's why I opened the wellness center, because you know, if I gain weight, my leg's not going to fit. You know, and I've, I, I have to stay in top shape to lead a normal, energetic life and travel a lot and do and start projects like this. So for right. me, it's, it's not a choice. That makes sense. So finally, let's uh, go full circle back yeah. to politics. So was it sitting around the, uh, the campfire at the Rockefeller retreat, or the family retreat, I should say, because there's a lot of you, your last name is Spencer, and mm. obviously the family grows and grows right. and brings in a lot of new people, uh, where you've got Jay Rockefeller, who's a Democrat from right. West Virginia. Was that a topic that was... Discussed all the time. Nelson Rockefeller, obviously, being a big part of the family, um, or or did that just that just you happen to be born interested in that in that topic? I think actually, to be, to be honest with you, Jenk, it was a combination of the two because um, you know my uncle is more liberal than I am, but he really cared about policy, and and he took an incredible amount of heat one, uh, a few years ago when he get, when he got up and gave a speech to the West Virginia Joint Chambers and said, look. You know, we can bury our head in the sand and pretend that coal is going to be around, or we can adjust to the new economy. Coal is dying. And you hear people talk about that all these jobs that have been lost. Well, they haven't been lost because coal is not being used. They've been lost because the coal mining industry has cut the jobs through automation and efficiency. Mm-hmm. So he, unfortunately, his successor, Shelley Moore Caputo, who is, and by the way, we always used to tease Jay because I think he was the first West Virginia governor in, I don't know, in like 10 that wasn't indicted or convicted of, of something. <laughs> well, he so, didn't need the money, yeah. so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so he, uh, but it, you know, he would really stick up for things that, uh, that, that, that he believed in. And, 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 I, you know, and I honor that. I think that's one of the most sacred and, unfortunately, these days, rarest qualities in politics is when you hear people stand up for things because they really believe it's the right thing to do, not because they're being influenced by outside sources. And so I think that, that I really admired him in that. So, but, but to answer your question, 
I think it was a combination of that. But ever since I was a kid, I was always interested in politics. I majored in it in college, and I just became more and more of a junkie. And um, uh, when when the in, particularly after the uh, uh, 2010 election, when the Tea Party, which I think is probably the worst thing that have ever happened to the Re- Republican Party, because our system is based on compromise. And, you know, to the Tim Pules camps of the world, compromise is treason. Mm-hmm. Yep. Know, it's, it, it, it's, all, it's all about purity. And again, politics, our founding fathers designed the system to require compromise. This is not a parliamentary system, right? So that's one of the reasons why. And part of that is, look, even Jimmy Carter didn't have as bad a relation with Congress as Barack Obama. So again, I think if Obama had made more of an effort, I think... That's why governors make much better presidents than senators. Obama, by the way, trivia, is only the third senator to go straight from the Senate to the White House. JFK and then Chester A. Arthur, who was one of the worst presidents in history, were the the only other two. And so governors make better presidents because they've run governments. So I'm left at the end here wondering Mm -hmm. whether I should root for you or not. Because on the one hand, you're, you know, more... Practical and moderate and, and, and reasonable, uh, but on the other hand, if the Republicans listen to you, they might win more. And so I don't, I don't think I want them winning. <laughs> but if if they, if they listen to me, that means that, that they would actually change their views and change their policies, and they might get but back. But there's still plenty I disagree with you on that I don't want you to win on. Yeah, well, well, I, and that's and, and and that's totally fair. But for example, I think a, a candidate who who even uh, someone who who wasn't Overly progressive could support would be someone like John Kasich, mm-hmm. the governor of Ohio. Yeah, I hear you. Who has he was chairman of the budget committee. He was on the armed services committee. He was reelected last year by thirty one percent. And what and what I like about him, in addition to the fact that he is as close to a compassionate conservative, which is usually an oxymoron. Yep. Uh, and that's why I always say I'm a Republican. I'm not a conservative. Uh-huh. Uh, but he talks about you know again even in that first debate. You know, he was like, yeah, I took the Medicaid money. We got 10,000 drug addicts help. We got 11,000 mentally ill people, you know, the help that, the, that they needed. He's talking about what we can do positively. And he came from a very modest background. And he's someone, I think, that could be uh, the kind of Republican president that could get stuff done because people, people like him. Mm. And uh, he's not... He's not Overly partisan. He's not overly conservative. He's not strident. So you know, he's someone. For example, now I mean, a lot of the other candidates, and I've always predicted that uh, Scott Walker was going to flame out because he wasn't ready for prime time, and that's and that's happened. But again, you know, for example, sometimes if you compare states, for example, it's always California versus Texas. I think the best comparison is Minnesota versus Wisconsin. All right, you had Mark Dayton, who's a pretty liberal governor, though I should say. He was married to my aunt uh, for a while. But he's someone who raised some taxes, cut others, put money into education. Minnesota has done, so, has done better on almost every metric. Wisconsin is 38th in job creation. They have this huge budget deficit. You know, it, it, the thing that gets me most, and I'm, this is one thing that we will agree on, is they say insanity is, is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different result. And if you cut top marginal tax rates by less or raise them by less than 10%, the effect is negligible. Okay, JFK cut them from 91 to 70. That had an effect. Reagan cut them from 70 to 50. That had an effect. Clinton raised them from 31 to 39.6, and we had the the biggest boom in history, right? 
And so right now, you're, you're looking at Bush, who then came in with a straight face and said, I'm going to cut him from 39 to 30, 30, 39.6 to 35. And it was a $2 trillion waste of money. So That's what I would do yep, as a... Definitely right. And, 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 and frankly, I want to hear people talk about entitlements because that's what's going to bankrupt the country. Do you know that if you take away entitlements and military spending, how much of the budget every year do you think is discretionary? Oh, it's a tiny amount. Tiny amount. So it's entitlements, right? So I would, if I were a John Kasich, I would come in and I I would offer middle-class tax cuts because working-class whites are a very big part of the Republican Party, which in some ways... Is counterintuitive because the policies of the Republican policy of the party have been so inimical towards so many of these people. But I would offer middle class tax cuts, which first of all work because again, right? I'm a pragmatist. If you allow people with a lot of money to keep more of it, they spend some of it. If you allow people with little or no money to keep more of it, they spend all of it, right? I mean, this is not this is not rocket science. That would give you a legitimate reason to reform entitlements because you can say, look, we're going to give you a short term rebate here for a short-term cut in the programs to save them in the long run. Okay. So that so, would be a great, a great we're, policy. We're back to disagreeing. Okay. <laughs> okay. Which is good. See, I, I enjoy conversations more where we disagree than when we agree. Right. So I think, that would take fun, another- I think fundamentally we're in the, in, in the right place and we share the common goals. It's just our, our roots of getting there are a little different. That's right. That's right. And, and the, the, the Social Security Medicare conversation would be another 20-minute yeah. conversation. But uh, but I, I'll leave it at everybody check out practicallyrepublican.com yeah. and find out whether you agree or disagree, right? And yeah. Give it a fair shot. And and, uh, and no matter what you think of, of Dave's politics, agree or disagree, uh, I think we all can agree on your views on charity and philanthropy. And as a, a homeless guy where I used to live in New York used to say to me, you don't have to be a Rockefeller to help a fella. <laughs> <laughs> so that could be your takeaway from this interview. Dave, yeah. thanks for so much. God, it's been great. I really, really had a, a great conversation. And, you know, the key, I always say, and why I enjoy doing this so much, is that with me, it's never, it's never personal, right? I, I will attack someone's ideas, but I will never attack them. Because, mm-hmm. and in your case, I think we agree on some stuff, we disagree on some stuff, but we've obviously thought a lot about it. Yep. And we're passionate about it, and so both sides, I think, are, are, are worthy of respect on that. Uh, I hope the country can have more conversations like this. Thank and you. And as we always say in Practically Republican, let's talk. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you.